Welcome to the Horizon Church Podcast. Thanks for joining us. Our mission as a church is to win people to Jesus Christ, disciple people in Jesus Christ, and send people for Jesus Christ. If you'd like to learn more or partner with us, simply go to horizon.org. We hope this episode encourages you in your walk with Jesus as you continue to grow in His love and truth. Now, let's join Pastor Bob as we study God's Word together. Grab your Bible with me, if you would, please. Grab it and open to 1 Thessalonians. First uh, Thessalonians chapter 4. We've been uh, on the East Coast a little bit, traveling, spent some time in Charlotte, uh, North Carolina, and then down into South Carolina, and then down into Georgia. Uh, saw a lot, learned a lot, saw some uh, prep schools that were uh, really intrigued by that have been at it a lot longer than uh, we have. There's a school in Savannah, Georgia called uh, the Bethesda School, it was started by George Whitfield. Is that amazing? Uh, and it's still going, still going strong, still teaching the Word. Uh, amazing, amazing school. Saw some uh, incredible churches. Uh, kind of kept an eye out for um, the opportunity to send some teams. But that part of the country, I'm telling you, they just rebound from a storm like that. Um, it's almost like you couldn't even tell that it happened, and now several storms have come since. It's kind of interesting, isn't it, that the first storm seems to get a lot of attention. And then other storms roll in and don't quite get the same coverage uh, on, on, uh, on the media or press coverage. Uh, in fact, I think Texas has now received as much or equal to the amount of rain that Harvey delivered and you've hardly heard anything about it, but uh, our prayers are for those who are uh, in Texas and uh, certainly in the Bahamas. Uh, I think that's really where um, uh, the rebuilding and, and a lot of uh, the partnership could come into play. We've got uh, some good connections down there through our Calvary Chapel family, and uh, we'll keep you apprised of that and uh, certainly uh, excited to see the doors that the Lord would open for us there. But uh, that part of the nation uh, I'd never been to. Bon, bon's a lit major, and so she had read literally, no exaggeration, hundreds of books on this particular region of the South and uh, had never seen it. And so um, I think Dorian sort of provided the opportunity for us to go and... and um, and then, but also see some things that she's read about, um, but had never seen. And just to kind of watch her get excited about that and connect the dots. And I was just kind of along for the ride and learned so much and kind of came out of it with this new fascination and realization that that part of the country had been majorly impacted by the Wesley brothers, by John and Charles Wesley, who came over from England at the invitation of uh, General Oglethorpe and uh, preached in many of the churches that we had a chance to visit. And um, John Wesley um, and, uh, and Charles, who's written so many of the hymns that we grew up on and enjoy. And then George Whitfield uh, came over with these fellows and just had an incredible revival and impact back in the Carolinas uh, when, when they were just a colony, a combined colony, and, and named, I didn't know this, named after um, King Charles, didn't know that before the trip, 
Uh, and then Georgia, named after King George. And so you kind of get this whole history that, again, is just kind of like not being taught or like overlooked or deleted from the textbooks these days. But man, it is rich and, uh, and, and truly amazing. And to think that this gal, this woman, Susanna Wesley, Susanna Wesley was the 25th of 25 children. and literally gave birth to the revival Wesleyan movement that swept the colonies. So what if her parents stopped at, I don't know, 24, which seems very logical. <laughs> we stopped after three. I mean, that's the extent of our faith. <laughs> 20 five kids, she was 25th, and so then, Really no great shock that in 1703, she gives birth to her 15th child. Having come from a big family, she now wants a big family, ultimately has 19 kids, but in 1703 gives birth to her 15th child, that being John Wesley. And this guy rocked our, our nation in, in a very powerful way at a very early uh, state when we were just sort of formulating. We went to a house uh, where Washington and Jefferson and, uh, and the Wesleys frequented and ultimately had these private meetings in this home in Savannah and began to sort of put together and, and conceive of a plan to break away from the rule of the of, of, of the empire of England, and that house is still there, still standing. And um, when John Wesley was five years old, still living over there in England, his house caught fire, and his bedroom was in the attic. So like, you know, good luck getting him out. Like, you're the, the all these kids, right? And yet his, his bedroom's like in the rafters, and yet he was literally plucked from the fire and felt very much like God had uh, purposed his life and blessed him and, um, and, and, and saved him for, for, for such a purpose as to see this nation founded. And um, so there in England, he began his ministry and then ultimately gets invited to bring that ministry here. Uh, to the colonies, to the 13 colonies, Georgia being the 13th of the 13 colonies, invited to come there. And it took four months. He took a boat ride that took four months to get uh, to Savannah, sailed from London to Savannah and hit a storm. And the storm took down the main mast of the ship and he's freaking out, trying to hold it together and notices this group on the same ship of Moravians. Now, the Moravians would have been like the Quakers from England, although the Moravians would have been from Germany, but sort of that same idea that were coming over here. And in the midst of the storm, Wesley notes in his diary that they were not freaking out. They were calm. They were peaceful. They were prayerful. It's almost like that storm with the disciples on the Sea of Galilee where they think they're going down and Jesus is just, you know, sleeping it off, just kind of enjoying the evening, and, 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 and Wesley writes and says their faith in the moment of that storm 
you know, impacted him like being plucked from the fire at his home earlier when he was five years old. And when the boat finally landed in Georgia, he got off that ship with a passion and a purpose and a faith to share Jesus Christ with everyone that he possibly could. And so um, I, I, I want you to realize that that legacy is what we studied together this morning. That this passage of Scripture in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 is really the buildup. It is now sort of a long and waited for chapter after chapter of a foundation that's been built for the crux of the matter that is now presented before you beginning in verse 13 of chapter 4. It's sort of like, you know, when they were playing some of those songs, the worship team, some of them, those songs started a little bit slowly, okay? And you were kind of like, I don't know. And then all of a sudden it started to take off. And it sort of brought you along with it, didn't it, right? And if you're familiar with like a musical score, it would be the sort of the crescendo that you would see there on the, on the, on the sheet of music. And it would be like a, a, a V for volume, like a V that's laid down on its side. And it would just get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? You know what I'm talking? So that crescendo is now where we are in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. So if you've wandered in, if you've kind of been invited, you are here for the climax. You are here for the, for the, the big symbol crash of what Paul has been desiring and ultimately what Wesley got off that boat to share with this land. So would you please stand with me? Do you mind? Let's stand in the presence of the Lord because I don't want you to think that this is me speaking this morning. You haven't come to hear from me. Heavens, no. Nor have you come to hear from Paul. This is what God has to say, is what he has to say to you this morning. This is God's word. All right? Amen? So listen to what he says. Here's what he says in verse 13. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren. Who's speaking? Who's speaking? God is speaking. Yes, Paul, he's chosen to speak through Paul as his vessel, as his instrument. But this is the word of the Lord. And the word of the Lord says he doesn't want you to be ignorant. Brethren, family, standing in his presence. Listen, I don't want you to be ignorant concerning those who have fallen asleep. Lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord, here's the, here's the, here's the big crash. Here's the big symbol. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Lord, you declare that this is going to take place. That this is not some hopeful wish. That this is going to be an absolute fact. 
and we need to be ready for it. And so may we end this morning give you our full attention and allow you to speak to our hearts through your Holy Spirit and bless this time that we gather together for we gather in Jesus' name. And everyone said? Amen. You may be seated in the presence of the Lord. This is it. Paul's rapture passage. Now I've entitled it Uncovering the Grave. Uncovering the Grave. If we could just sort of like uncover what's going on here together. We would be uh, the better for it, ladies and gentlemen, because this is the reality. And um, I, I hope just in these moments to maybe answer a few questions about what happens when you die. And maybe even more importantly than that, what awaits for you after death? Not just what happens when you die, but what's awaiting for you when you do. And I, I love the fact that Paul bookends these these verses here, he bookends the passage with two very weighty words. What's the first one? The first weighty word there in verse 13, what? Ignorant. He don't want you to be ignorant. He don't want you to be ignorant about these things. And then secondly, bookends it with the word, look at verse 18, comfort. Comfort. Don't be ignorant. Certainly concerning these things about death and, 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 and the grave. I, I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you begin to sorrow as others who, who have no hope. I want you to find comfort in this, ultimately, is what he is helping for us to realize. I don't want you to be ignorant. So let's just, um, let's unpack this together. Let's just take some time, because I think there are four groups, four forever groups that he mentions here. You might want to jot them down. Uh, you might want to realize with me what he is saying. And here are the groups. Four groups. Those who die with hope. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about those who are actually going to experience death, but they're going to experience with great hope. Great hope. And then the secondly, there's those who are going to die. They're going to experience death without hope. And that's a hard funeral, man. That's a tough one for me to be asked to do when there's no hope, when they didn't die without hope. Okay, so they're the first two of the four. You're either gonna die with hope or you're gonna die without hope or, or you're not gonna die because there are those who are gonna be raptured. Look, at here are the groups. Those who die with hope, those who die without hope. You know people right now, God's putting them on your heart that would fall into these four categories. And you're probably already praying for those that you know right now, if they died, God forbid, didn't make it through the rest of this beautiful, gorgeous Sunday morning in San Diego, that they would die without the hope that you have this morning. And the job and the role for us isn't just to come to church, but to come to church so we can be equipped to help share that hope like Wesley came to share it with our nation at a very early age. But then there are those that aren't going to experience that thing called death. They're, and, and they're going to be raptured. There's those that are going to be caught up, as, as, as the Lord would say through the words of Paul, caught up to meet the Lord in the air. I just wonder if you're living for that, if you're excited about that, if, if you're anticipating that. Because there are those who are, and then fourthly, there are those who aren't. Aren't what? Aren't raptured. 
aren't caught up and are actually left here. Left here to have that experience of hopelessness that is upon those who die without this faith, who die without this relationship. You know, to die without that hope is to die in despair. And it breaks my heart because I'm telling you, uh, hell is hot and forever is a long time. And we need to be ready. We need to be prepared. And if, if you aren't, I'm glad you're here today because this is much to be avoided. What is, Bob? What's to be much avoided in your life at all costs is dying without this hope. For you to die in despair and die without the Lord Jesus Christ as the hope of your salvation. But to die with hope, it's fascinating, isn't it? Because Paul says those who have died with hope are really only sleeping. Now let's be honest. Let's be truthful about this. They're dead. They died. But he couches it in the context of death not having the last word, of death not having the victory. And to that extent, then, those who die with this hope can be described and are various times throughout Scripture as only just being asleep. Do you remember when Lazarus dies? When Lazarus dies in John chapter 11, John 11, 11. And they're all mad at Jesus. They're like, man, if you, would have, if you would have been here, our brother would still be alive. And Jesus says what? What does he say? You remember what he says? He's only sleeping. And Martha, Martha's like, you are so wrong. He isn't sleeping. What do you think we're idiots? He's been dead. She says he's been dead for four days. In fact, she says in the old King James Version, he stinketh. Love that. Look that up. He stinketh, Lord. <laughs> but the Lord, who's actually wept over the death of Lazarus, so he's not just asleep, he's actually been emotional about this friendship, this loved one, probably the one that he's closer to than anyone else outside of his immediate circle of disciples that are following him everywhere he goes. And, and, and Peter and James and John and the 12. And, but, but outside of that realm, he's got, he's got a buddy and his buddy's Lazarus. And here he, wept, he weeps, he wept over hearing the news that he had died, knowing what he was going to do. What's he do? He rises him from the dead. This is Lazarus, come forth. And describes this guy not as if death has got the last word or gets the victory, but that he was just sleeping. Our our hope then, Christian, listen, our hope is that sleep is something we wake up from. It happens not just to Lazarus. Do you remember Stephen? Stephen is the first martyr. And there in the book of Acts, as they are pelting him with rocks, as he's being buried in a pile of rocks, he does two things. First of all, he forgives them in the same manner to which Jesus forgives those that are at the foot of the cross and says, Father, forgive them. They don't, know, they, don't, they don't have any idea what they're doing. Forgive them, Father. They don't know what they're doing. Stephen does the same thing. As they are hurling rocks at his head, he says, Father, forgive them. And then, what happens? He says he falls asleep. Does he? Well, yeah, he does. But he dies. Bobby dies. Yeah, but he dies in hope. 
And those who do, who have this faith, need to see that death doesn't have the final word, that the grave doesn't get the victory, that it is referred to throughout Scripture. And Paul, again here, through the inspiration of God's Holy Spirit, says, don't lose hope. You're like, wait a minute. Well, just hold on a second, Bob, because you're, those who die without the hope those who just die in despair, they wake up too. You're absolutely right. But what do they wake up to? They wake up to death like they have never experienced death before. I mean, eternal darkness. Have you ever woke up to that kind of darkness? That type of eternal? Oh, they wake up. But they wake up in the reality of what they will now be separated from in hell for the rest of forever. We, we on the other hand, we, church, we, on the other hand, rejoice this morning for to be absent from the body, come on, come on, come on, is to be present with the Lord. Your, your body will be buried, but but. Your real you, 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 the real you inside this tent that you showered this morning, this tent that you dressed this morning, this outer shell we will, we will bury. We'll put you in the ground. We will bury you, cremate you, whatever you want to do. I don't care. Whatever you, speed up the process. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. There they are, both processes. What do you want? But the real you isn't put in the ground. The real you isn't put in the oven. The real you lives forever. Your body will be put in the... We, we were in Savannah, and my wife has this thing about cemeteries. I don't, I don't, I don't know. And, and literally, she is like looking around the cemeteries. They're just like going back in the 1700s, and she's finding this guy and finding this. She's literally Googling on her phone to find this particular guy or gal that's buried in this cemetery. She's like, I don't know, I can't. We're like there for hours. I'm like, kidding me. It's humid. She's like, no, 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 no. It says three trees over <laughs> by, by the back fence. There, there, there they are, buried there. But this, this word for cemetery in the, in the Greek language, it's an interesting word. The word for cemetery in the Greek language here in the New Testament, it's, the word, it's where we get our English word dormitory. You're just sleeping. You're just sleeping it off. You're just waiting for this great reunion when, when your shell, your body gets reunited with your soul who to be absent from the body is in the presence of the Lord forever. The real you will always be alive and forever in the presence of the Lord. There's no such thing as soul sleep. Your soul will never sleep. Your body might temporarily sleep for a while in some dormitory of a cemetery. But your soul will never sleep. Listen, please listen, listen, listen. You will forever be conscious either of His presence or you will forever be conscious of His absence. Forever. But then there's this group. It's fascinating, this passage of Scripture for us this morning just to sort of tackle together and look at because there is this traveling group mentioned now that avoids the death thing altogether. And I'm like, sign me up. 
Because it really isn't being dead that bugs me, it's getting dead. That's a drag. And he's saying, here's an option. I'm like, to avoid this death thing altogether, that there is a day that is coming, church. And it is a day that is imminent. Any moment. And when it happens, it's going to happen so fast that you're going to blink and miss it. It's not the blink, it's the twinkling of an eye. Not just the blink of an eye. And it's over, baby. you got to be ready for this. This is an upcoming RSVP that you don't want to miss out on. In fact, there's a metaphor that's used more throughout Scripture than rapture because rapture is a hard word to actually pin down and find. I mean, here when he says caught up, to be caught up, to meet the Lord in the air, that's where you get this word rapture. It's Latin. It's the Latin word rapturos, to be caught up, to be snatched. But ultimately, there is a, a, a more used metaphor throughout Scripture that describes what's going to be happening in the last days. And that's really what I want to spend the rest of our time with, just sort of unpacking and looking at together this morning. And that metaphor that is most used to describe this end times event that I so much, with all of my heart, pray, I mean pray unceasingly with passion for you concerning that you would be ready for this day. And that metaphor is the metaphor for for harvest. It is a last day's harvest that's going to take place. I don't know how you feel about this or where your theology lines up with this. this. This isn't my opinion. This isn't like Well, let's see what Bob has to say. It doesn't matter what I have to say. This is what God's Word says. We have stood together and we have seen it. And he says with a shout, with the trumpet of God, the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive and remain are going to be raptured. We're going to be harvested. There's going to be this harvest, end times harvest. And I just want you to be thinking about that, you know, in light of, you remember Field of Dreams where they just sort of like from the field the baseball field just sort of walked into the cornfield and right wasn't it Darth Vader who did that he's like the, the Darth Vader voice he's, and he laughs as he goes in I don't know if you're approaching this with, with, with laughter and grace and hope or uh, kicking and screaming but ultimately, it is a, is a harvest that is waiting. And Jesus said this, in looking out on all of the fields, he said, they are white unto harvest. They are, they are, they are ready. They are over. We are, we are living now as a field. As a field, we are overly ripe for the picking and to be swooped up and to be taken home. Now, what's interesting about this harvest idea is there are actually three parts to it. Three parts to this harvest. And here's where we need to just spend some time and unpack together and see what Scripture says. Because the order of it is extremely significant. And that's why I'm so grateful that you're here this morning. This idea that there'll be an end-time harvesting, a harvest of souls is something that's going to happen in three parts. Let me give them to you. There's going to be a barley harvest. And this is, this is, this is true uh, still today. And certainly in the region of the Middle East, there would be a barley harvest that would come first. 
It would be the first harvest, and it would always precede the second harvest, which would always precede the third harvest. Here they are. There's a barley harvest, there's a wheat harvest, and there's a grape harvest. Like, where does this come from? Let me show you. Turn to 1 Corinthians with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You're going to be fascinated. So just, if you're in 1 Thessalonians, just turn over to the left a few books with me. Find 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And uh, I don't know if you've seen this. I just want you to see this. It really lines up beautifully and dovetails what the Lord has been saying to us through 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I want you to see it through a different lens from a different perspective in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Look at verse 20. You got it? You got it? Say got it. Still getting it? Look at those pages turning. Doesn't that sound beautiful? That is a beautiful sound. I miss it when you all like are electronically, you know, but that's cool too. You're just there. You beat us all. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 20. Everybody got it? But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Believers who die in hope, who die, have fallen asleep. We're told here again, just fallen asleep they have. Those who are part of this harvest of first fruits, the barley harvest was always the first harvest, the first of the first fruits. Christ being the first of the first of the first fruits, who has risen from the dead and now has opened the door for all of us so that death doesn't have the final word. We'll just fall asleep and awaken his presence. Beautiful. Look at verse 21. For since by man came death, by man, capital M, the man, the God man, Jesus Christ, since by the man also came the resurrection of the dead. So man had a problem. The problem was death. Through man came death, but God sent his son to fix the problem of death. And, 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 and by that man now comes a solution to death, the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. Now just camp out there with me for a second. Soak that in. Because all means all. All will be made alive. The question is, listen, where will you be made alive to then spend eternity? Your soul isn't going to ever sleep. It's going to live on, and you consciously will then live on either in the presence or absence of the Lord. For all, meaning all, shall be made alive. Now look at this, verse 23. But each one in his own order. So there's an order to this. Fascinating. Have you ever seen this verse? But each one in his own order. Here's the order. Christ, the firstfruits, and then afterward, those who are Christ's at His coming. Okay, let me clarify. That's not the rapture. That's the second coming. When it says Christ at His coming, that's His second coming. That's when He returns here on earth to establish His kingdom and reign on earth. And we who have been raptured will return with Him when He comes. So, please note the order. The first harvest is 
is, is, is Christ and the first fruits. The second harvest, afterward, those who are Christ's at his coming. And then comes the end. Then there's the third harvest. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. In other words, Satan, you are done with. You are thrown into the lake of fire. You are off your pedestal and a new power and a new authority and a new rule that has always deserved to be the power, authority, and rule is forever then put in place. But please note, please note, that passage is fascinating in the sense that it breaks it down into an order of how these harvests will take place. The first fruits, the barley. The barley is the first grain to be harvested. Do you remember when we were growing up, we used to, if you grew up in the church, we used to sing this song about the sheaves, bringing in the sheaves. Anyone remember? Bringing in the sheaves, bringing in. Maybe Wesley wrote it. I don't know. I'm giving him credit. You were singing about the barley. We will come rejoicing, bringing in. It was the first fruits. It was the first fruits of the first harvest which was the barley harvest. In fact, it's fascinating if you really want to get into this. Uh, when, when, when the plagues come upon Pharaoh and Egypt, we're told that the barley was destroyed, but not the wheat. You know why the wheat wasn't destroyed? Because the wheat hadn't come into harvest yet. There wasn't any wheat to be destroyed because it was still in the season of the first harvest, which is the barley harvest. Now, when was the barley harvest celebrated it was always celebrated with passover passover was the earliest festival passover was the earliest spring feast and passover always occurred during the barley harvest and it was the feast of first fruits it was the feast of unleavened bread and it was the feast of the first fruits do you know when the feast of the first fruits is celebrated check this out it is celebrated on the first day of the week after the sabbath following Passover. Okay, just do the math with me on that for a second. When is that? In the times of Jesus Christ being here on earth, when would the first fruit, the first fruits feast be celebrated? Be celebrated on the first day of the week following the Sabbath after the Passover. That's Easter. First day of the week, Easter Sunday morning. Following the Sabbath, just after the Passover. Remember the Passover meal? The Last Supper? He holds it up and he says, guys, this is all pointing not so much to the past, it's pointing to what I'm going to now accomplish for you on the cross. And he opened the door, his resurrection did. He opened the door for those who now are believing in what he accomplished for us, also being a part of this amazing harvest that is referenced to now as the barley harvest. The first of the three harvests. He would say this, he would say, I'm the bread of life. 
Now, after the barley harvest, for the, for the overcomers, for, for those that are a part of the resurrection, and that's what the rapture is pointing to, those who are, who are either having died, but have died in hope, are going to be resurrected, or, or those that are still remaining that are going to be caught up, resurrected to meet the Lord in the air, having avoided the death thing altogether, it is a, it is a harvest of resurrection, which is when the barley harvest of first fruits was celebrated. Secondly, you had this wheat harvest. Now, the wheat harvest is going to be a harvest of those at his coming. So there is this time period between the rapture and his second coming, and it's called the Great Tribulation. And that's when primarily the majority of Jews in Israel will realize who the Messiah really is. Hopefully, prayerfully, Many will come to realize that prior to the barley being harvested, the rapture, but the majority of them will come to realize that in the wheat harvest, in the second harvest, in the harvest that takes place during the great tribulation, where the Jews and many others will then put their faith in Jesus Christ. And the book of Revelation goes into great detail specifically as to how that harvest will go down. Suffice it to say, that is a period in history that you want to avoid. Like if you're signing up for one of these harvests, you're like, because um, that's where the wheat will be separated from the tares. You know how the barley is harvested? It's not beaten. It's not beaten. It is just, it's held up in the wind and the wind separates it. And Jesus says the wind is like the Holy Spirit in John chapter three when he's speaking to Nicodemus. The wheat is harvested in an entirely different way. It is beaten. And the wheat is then separated from the tares. That's the, that's the great tribulation. And if you're like here this morning saying, well, I'm, 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 I'm on team barley. <laughs> and not for the beer, knock it off. It's, it's. It's uh, because you know how the wheat is harvested, right? You know how it's harvested? The head with the sickle is removed from the stalk. So how do the believers who come to faith in the great tribulation end up losing their lives? Like, I mean, how fascinating is this, you guys? That's the wheat harvest. And according to Revelation chapter 20, verse 4, everybody who comes to Christ during that harvest, during that season, during that period called the Great Tribulation will lose their head. Then you have a, a grape harvest, the third harvest. And the grape, the grape harvest, according to Revelation chapter 14, is just where this globe, where this planet is trodden down. That's how you harvest grapes. It is trodden down, literally trodden down, underfoot, under siege. It is crushed. Why? So that this world's final judgment can be faced so that ultimately a new wine is produced, a new world is produced, a new earth is produced, a new heaven is produced, as a result of your third option, a grape 
harvest of being crushed and trodden down. So let's get back to the first. Because this barley harvest is where you want to be. This is what you want to live for. And let me just give you a couple of clues, maybe throughout Scripture, that would portray the importance of being a part of this camp or category or harvest known as barley. And, and, and maybe it'll just help because I think a lot of the stories that I'll just point to you will help you like, I don't know, springboard into a study throughout Scripture that just causes you to become fully enraptured in living for nothing else but the rapture as a part of the barley harvest. For example, do you remember the love story of all love stories that is just tucked into the Old Testament and opens for us this amazing picture of God's redeeming love for the Gentile, for the non-Jewish race among us, where in the midst of the book of Judges, where it was like, out of control. I mean, crazy. In fact, we're told twice in Judges and at the beginning of this little love story, romantic picture called the book of Ruth, that everyone was doing what seemed to be right in their own eyes. So it was chaos. No, it's out of control. That, that, that would drop into this beautiful romantic picture in, in the midst of so much baggage and wreckage and, and confusion and chaos is this love story of Ruth. And you, and you all you all know it. You love it. It's amazing. Here's what's amazing. Uh, barley, as a word in Scripture, is used more times in the book of Ruth than any other book in the Bible. And we're not talking about a very big book. What is it, four chapters? It's a little four-chapter love story. But here's what's fascinating about it. Look at this verse here. In Ruth chapter 1, let me just remind you of the context. Look what it says. And Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, with her. You remember that? Where you go, I will go. Your God will be my God. She's a Moabite, you guys. She is an enemy of God. But she says to Naomi, I'll go with you, and returns from the country of Moab and came to Bethlehem. When? 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 At the beginning of the barley harvest. You have got to be kidding me. Doctor, are you serious? Because here's the deal. You would have read that verse before this morning and just passed it on by like, uh, like why even bother telling us about the barley harvest until you realize now that that is indicative of the very group to which Ruth represents. That I pray and hope with all my heart you now would sign up and join to be a part of Team Barley. Because she's resurrected, you guys. I mean, from hopelessness to hopefulness and now is introduced to her kinsman redeemer, Boaz, as she is gleaning in his fields of barley. And he gives her a gift. Boaz gives her a gift. I mean, he is like, love at first sight. Wow, is she amazing? Whose daughter is she? And gives her a gift to take home to her mother-in-law. Couple sacks of barley. The significance of that, the symbolism of that, that they then would marry and she lands herself in the family of Jesus Christ, becoming the mom of Obed who gives birth to Jesse, who gives birth to David, the king of Israel. What a redeeming story of romance that you now have an opportunity to be grafted into by joining the barley harvest of resurrection. Her life is resurrected out of the dumps. 
and into the glorious hope and promise and future that God has come to provide. And God is pictured in this symbol of love and romance that Boaz pours out upon Ruth, and it all happens. How coincidentally, it all happens during the barley harvest. Because the barley harvest is the harvest of first fruits and resurrection. Gideon, the story of Gideon. Gideon's fascinating because all three harvests are represented in Gideon's story. Do you remember how it begins? He is harvesting wheat. That's that second group. That's the great tribulation group, the wheat and the tares. He is harvesting the wheat. Where is he harvesting it? That's what's kind of fascinating about it. He's harvesting the wheat where? In a wine press. What? You don't harvest wheat in a wine press. You harvest grapes in a wine. There's the third harvest. The grape harvest. The wheat harvest. And then the angel, the angel of the Lord, the angel shows up and says, Oh, Gideon, you mighty man of valor. God has chosen you. God has picked you, hand-picked you to bring deliverance to his people and to wipe out the Midianites. And Gideon's like, moi? Me? I mean, he's, he, he isn't necessarily, I think sometimes he, maybe he gets a bad rap. He isn't fearful, cowering as much as he's protecting his stuff from being stolen and then sort of dawns on him that maybe a safe place to then harvest the wheat would be down in the wine press to where the angel shows up and says, man, God's chosen you. And uh, we're picking teams and we're going to have a little contest. We're going to see who wins. And and, and Gideon's like, oh, we're going to have to, we're going to need a big team. Because the Midianites literally were described as an army that was larger than the sands of the sea. And God's like, who cares about the size of your army? If I'm on your team, Gideon, if I'm on your team, come on. And Gideon, he's got a little bit of a faith issue with this, right? He's having a little bit of trouble with this. And prior to him getting to the point where he's wanting to have things proven to him with the fleece, remember the story of the fleece? And he's like, okay, if you really mean business, if you're really true to your word, then make the fleece dry and everything wet around it. And God does. And then he's like, okay, that's not enough. Now, 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 now make it dry and everything wet around it, right? Or however I said it, the opposite. And before you even get to that, God says, how about this? How about you and your buddy sneak into the Midian camp? Do you remember this? Just sneak into the Midian camp and overhear what they're talking about in one of their tents. And so he goes. And when Gideon had come, there was a man telling a dream to his companion. So he's like eavesdropping, listening into this Midianite tell his camping bunk buddy in the tent the dream that he had he said this i had a dream and to my surprise a loaf of barley come on you're making this up it's there it is there and you easily probably would have looked over it until now you see dots being connected and a story being woven throughout scripture that is pointing to how god wants to preserve you and protect you as he does Ruth and as he does Gideon. 
I saw in my dream this loaf of barley and it was rolling down into the camp of Midian and it came to a tent and it struck it so it fell, overturned the tent, collapsed. And the guy interprets the dream and says, you know what that loaf of barley is, don't you? And the guy's like, I have no idea what this is about. He goes, that loaf of barley is Gideon. Calls him out by name. That's Gideon and his army and they're coming to destroy us. And ultimately, he picks a bunch of guys, and God says, you pick too many. you got too many on your team. And Gideon's like, no, we don't. Have you seen the Midianites? And God's like, no, you have too many. And if I'm on your team, I'm all you need, Gideon. So just tell the guys that aren't like feeling it, who don't really like want to go to war. They'd rather go to the farmer's market. Just tell them to go on over. Just like cross the street right down there. Just go there. And a whole bunch of them bail. Right? You remember that? And then God says what? You still got too many. So let's take them all down for a drink. Let's take them for a drink down at the pond. And the ones that just, I mean, drop face directly in the water, tell them they're excused. But the ones that are are lapping it up with an eye to be looking out for the enemy, those are the ones that you want. And with, with 300... 300. Team Barley wins. And the Midianites, as big as they were, were destroyed. Incidentally, destroyed with nothing more than a clay pot and a candle inside the clay pot and a trumpet trumpet that probably sounded very much like the trumpet that we as members of the barley harvest are awaiting to hear blown from heaven and when that trumpet is blown Gideon's army is told to do what break the clay plot this tent this shell of which that clay pot represents so that the light that's within it would burst forth And that was enough to confuse the Midianites and get them cowering and running for the hills. And and Team Barley is preserved and, and, and Team Barley wins the day. There's a story of one of David's mighty men. His name is Eleazar. And Eleazar is an interesting guy, and, and, and we're told about him in 1 Chronicles. It says, after him was Eleazar, the son of Dodo. So I don't know if you're pregnant, looking for names. I'm just... <laughs> Options. Here to help. Um, the Ahothite. Uh, he was one of the three of David's mighty men. Okay. Um, fascinating that it's, it's actually more dod would be the word in Hebrew than dodo, and it means loving. It means loving. And uh, Ahoathite is the descendant of Ahoa, the Ahoathite. Uh, Ahoathite literally means a brother of rest. So look at that verse again now, knowing the meaning of the context of these words, that it would say that after him was the the 
the helper. Eleazar literally means God helps. God helps. Eleazar is the guy who, um, who, who went out and found a bride for Isaac, being led by the Holy Spirit. It literally, Eleazar means the, the comforter, the helper, the, the advocate. So Eleazar, the son of Dodo, so he's the advocate, he's the helper, he's the comforter, and he is the son of, of love. The Ahoathite means rest. He is the, 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 the brother of rest, the son of love, the advocate. I just want you to sort of hone in on that in the sense that that's who you have on your team, the Holy Spirit, the comforter, the advocate, the helper, the brother of love and the one that brings you rest in the midst of your storms and times and seasons of trouble that you would keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, that you would hold your ground and having done all to stand, we're told in Ephesians 6, you would stand, which is exactly what he does, Eliezer does. He was, he was with David of Passamim and there in the Philistines were gathered for battle and there was a piece of ground full of barley. And you're like, well, why would he be so intent to protect a field of barley? Except you now realize the significance and value and symbolism that is placed on this first fruits harvest of resurrected barley. He stationed himself in the middle of that field and defended it and killed the Philistines so that the Lord brought a great victory. Wow. Guys, there is something to this that you don't want to miss out on. In fact, John points it out to us in John chapter 6. You know what John chapter 6 is all about? You know what this story is all about? It's a story that's told in Matthew, it's told in Mark, it's told in Luke, and, and, and now it's told in John. But there's something in the story that John includes that the other Gospels leave out. It's the story of the feeding of the 5,000. And when Matthew tells the story, Matthew has an audience that he's trying to reach, Mark has an audience he's trying to reach, Luke has an audience he's trying to reach. But John is the guy who brings some spiritual significance and dimension to the story that the other gospel writers leave out. You know what? Are, are you interested? You want to know what John includes? Look at this. There was a lad who had five barley loaves. None of the other gospel writers tell you that it was a barley loaf. Only John does. Because he wants you to see the significance and symbolism of being a part of that harvest. He says it was barley loaves with two small fish, and it was like, well, what, what, is, what is this amongst so many? And then Jesus said, make the people sit down. There was much grass in the place, and the men sat down, and the number was 5,000, and Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, the disciples distributed them, and the disciples uh, to those that were sitting down, and likewise the fish as much as they wanted. Now here's also what John, and John alone says about this event, about this famous meal and story of the feeding of the 5,000. Look at verse 12. So when they were filled, Jesus said to his disciples, gather up the fragments that remain so that nothing is lost. No fragment left behind. Nothing lost. A barley harvest that is waiting for the 
eminent sound of the trumpet to be caught up to meet the Lord in the air and not to precede those who have died in this hope that will be raised to life again for the barley was the harvest of first fruits and resurrections and the other ones pale in comparison to this one that you want to be a part of. And I pray that you would know that you know that you know that you know today that you are because you are trusting in what He has done for you. And the Bible says that in trusting what He's done for you, my friends, none will be lost. None will be left behind. None will be overlooked. None will be forgotten. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. No one will ever snatch you out of my nail-scarred hand, declares the Lord to His church, the bride, the barley harvest. And then follows the wheat, which will lose their head and be separated from the chaff. And then comes the great harvest of the world when it is trodden underfoot and crushed. May I suggest that you take this not with a grain of salt, but rather with great sobriety and seriousness. Because what would Satan love for you to do? Choose for the barley to represent something else in your life of escapism. How fascinating that Rahab, another one who was an outsider, a prostitute, who had her little business set up on the walls of the city of Jericho, by the gates where the comings and the goings of traffic would pass by her prostituting windows until she comes to this knowledge of the truth and puts her faith in the God of Israel and meets the spies who have come in to check out the, 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 the strength of the city and, and all that waits uh, in, the, in, the, in the land of promise that, that God has set before them. And, 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 and then the men of Jericho come to try and seize the spies. And what does she do? What does she do? She hides them. No, you're kidding. Really? She hides them in the bushels of the barley and flax. She hides them under the you need to be hidden in this harvest for all that awaits and is about to come on this planet. She hides them in the barley flax. You, 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 you know what they make from the flax? Linen is made from the barley flax. Linen. And linen, if you're interested, is what you will be clothed in the moment this rapture and resurrection occurs. 
But according to Revelation chapter 19, we are to be glad and rejoice and give Him glory for the marriage, the marriage of the Lamb has come and His wife has made herself ready. And to her, church, to her, to this group, it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen. Clean and bright. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And he said to me, Write, for blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true sayings of God. Can you say amen to that this morning? Shall we stand? Shall we pray? Lord, to join this team, to be a part of this harvest, you have made it incredibly clear what needs to be done. Here's our step of application is to say yes to your great love, Lord, to say yes and amen to all that you have accomplished for us, Lord Jesus. To not hold back, to not think that waiting will bring about a better offer. You will never get a better offer than this. be washed to be right to be cleansed and to be forgiven to be a part of the harvest that awaits for the first fruits of being gathered gathered to meet the Lord in the air are you ready for that? Well, I hope I'm ready for that, Bob. I don't know. You want to know? You want to absolutely be certain, guaranteed? The Bible says this. If you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and confess with your mouth that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Uh, So I don't know. I mean, something like this, church. Seem pretty appropriate. God, sign me up. Move in, Lord. Take over. Be Lord of Lords and King of Kings. Save me from my sin. I repent from trying to do it in my own strength. And I surrender my life to you. Write my name in the book of life and fill me with your Holy Spirit. I want to be ready when that trumpet sounds. If dead to rise first because of the barley harvest and if alive and remaining to be caught up to meet you in the air and to be forever in the presence of the Lord. I'm living for that from this moment on.
Help me not to get distracted this week by what's happening to the left or what's happening to the right, but looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of my faith. I put my faith and trust. I put all my eggs in one harvest barley basket. Jesus, I'm yours, and you are mine, both now and forevermore. If you mean it, say amen. Amen. Let's sing together. Thanks for joining the Horizon Church Podcast with Pastor Bob. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast channel. And if this message has blessed you, please share it either directly or on social media. If you live in the San Diego area, we'd love to have you join us at a weekend service. Or to catch our live stream, visit horizon.org slash live every Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. Pacific. If you'd like to learn more or partner with us, simply go to horizon.org. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. We'll see you next time.